The 1980s was not only an explosion of pop culture, but of sugar and junk food. The deregulation by Ronald Reagan ushered in a new era of toys, cartoons, movies, and products directly targeted to kids. But something similar was also happening in the food and beverage world that Reagan may have also been responsible for. New ingredients such as high fructose corn syrup and aspartame were being unleashed on the entire public for the first time, and it may have set off a health crisis still felt to this day. This podcast will cover some science, politics, marketing, some economics, commerce, some health and medical info, a dash of government corruption, and a good dose of nostalgia. trigger warning as this podcast will discuss issues like food, health-related conditions, and obesity, and topics that some may find problematic. But let's start this show with a look at the history, introduction, and rampant use of sugar in the 80s, specifically high-fructose corn syrup. Where did this stuff come from? And is it really worse than regular sugar? High fructose corn syrup may not be the greatest ingredient in the world, but can we even consider it an ingredient as much as a chemical concoction? We become more aware of the issues of high fructose corn syrup, and some manufacturers have steered clear of it because of public backlash. We've also learned that it may not be too good for us, but other research will say it's not that bad. What are you supposed to believe, especially as a kid of the 80s or 90s? High fructose corn syrup actually goes back to the 1950s and then into the 60s. It began when Japanese and American industries started to make syrup from cornstarch. Using enzymes, the syrup had its atoms shuffled around to turn it from glucose to fructose. The rest of the process includes the use of things like activated carbons, ion exchange resins, and xylose isomerase. There are actually several kinds of high fructose corn syrup, including HFCS 42, that's 42% fructose, high fructose corn syrup 55, 55% fructose, and HFCS 90, which is 90% fructose. High fructose corn syrup 42 is often used in processed foods, and HFCS 55 is the go-to choice for beverages. You'll have to remember that for later. It's not that high fructose corn syrup was necessarily sweeter than sucrose, which was the main source of sweetener at that point, but it could be an alternative. And most importantly, it was very cheap to produce. That could be interesting. Beverages at first looked to be the ideal application for this new creation, but we could use this new substance for more than just drinks. It could be used in baked goods too. This was important when consumers wanted to move away from high-fat products. When you take the fat out of many products, they lose all their flavor, their texture, and their mouthfeel. And mouthfeel may be one of the most important attributes to why we're drawn to certain foods. High fructose corn syrup looked like it could replace those characteristics while still providing the browning we associate with baked goods. 
You could also use high fructose corn syrup as a less expensive maple syrup substitute. It could also be used to dilute honey. And it may surprise you to find out how much of our honey and maple syrup since the 80s and 90s is not actually that pure. High fructose corn syrup looked promising, but the discovery sat around for a while. And this is where we look at the changing world of food and beverages going into the late 70s and early 80s. Before high fructose corn syrup, as I mentioned, sucrose was the go-to sweetener for food and beverages. Now, going into the later 70s, sugar was becoming more expensive. There were more trade tariff issues and higher taxes and all that sort of thing and a lot of government battles back and forth. This caused food and beverage prices to rise. At the same time, corn, which we grew here, was becoming cheaper. Manufacturers decided to go back to that high fructose corn syrup concoction they created in the 60s. HFCS 55 would be the optimal choice to use in beverages. It costs next to nothing. And since it existed in a solution, almost like an oil, it could be easily pumped through pipes in manufacturing factories. Farmers were also encouraged to produce more corn. Then the price of corn plummeted even further. Now manufacturers can make drinks bigger without raising the price. This is why going into late 70s and early 80s, you saw drink sizes start to get enormous. Coca-Cola is obviously one of the main companies behind all of this, but they switched to high fructose corn syrup in 1980. And because they set the standard, most other drink manufacturers followed suit. Fast food companies could now offer supersized versions of their soft drinks without jacking up the price. You also got new drinks like the Big Gulp. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the Coke you get at McDonald's. The problem is the cup. It's too small. For about the same price, 7-Eleven's Big Gulp gives you the freedom to enjoy a bigger Coke, 45% more. And if you prefer Pepsi, they don't have it. But 7-Eleven's Big Gulp gives you another kind of freedom. Freedom of choice. America likes the freedom of 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven's Big This was awesome. You now got more for either the same price or even less. It was a great time if you were a kid and anyone just looking for a cheaper product. But no one looked to see if this stuff was even healthy. But why would they? High fructose corn syrup was not only cheaper to use in transport, but it also acted as a preservative in foods. This led to less spoilage. Products could now sit on the shelves much longer and reduce overhead costs for the companies. For hundreds of years, we only got fructose from whole foods. Depending on where you lived in the world, this was limited to just a handful of items and dependent on the time of the year. But from 1970 to 2000, our intake of added sugar rose by 25%. In the 70s, technology changed the way we fed our kids. Home alone, they watched television for companionship and cooked with their microwave. And when they weren't microwaving, kids seemed to be making fast food restaurants their second home. And the numbers bear that out. Pizza, pizza. In the last 15 years, pizza franchises have risen to nearly 20,000, up 590%. Burger franchises to over 35,000, nearly double. McDonald's alone is open one every 17 hours. And now in the 80s, our children seem to be paying for all these changes in our society. With high cholesterol counts, 
high blood pressure and obesity, which has grown at the alarming rate of 40% over the last 15 years. This all comes down to the issue of correlation versus causation. Causation is where something directly causes something. Correlation is when they might be related. But you see the rise in consumption of things like high fructose corn syrup and trans fats and whatnot in the 1980s and beyond. And then you see the rise in obesity rates and different reports stating that the rise in U.S. adult obesity after 1990 was a generation delayed effect of the increase in excess sugar calories consumed among children of the 1970s and 1980s, unquote. So there are a tidal wave of products, as mentioned, that came out in the 80s. But here are just a few that came out in the decade that aren't around anymore. Things like Hostess Pudding Pies, Hubba Bubba Soda, Funny Feet, Fat Frog Ice Cream, Squeeze-Its, Micro Magic Milkshakes. Uh, there's too many to mention, but they were just putting high fructose corn syrup into anything and putting it in the most colorful package possible. If you look at insider.com, they've actually released a list of some of the most popular food items per year. There's not data for every single year in the 80s, but as we went into 1979, ring pops were the number one uh, sold like junk food or fast food or whatever you want to call it. They were actually created by a man named Frank Richards who was helping wean his daughter off of thumb sucking. In 1980, the number one uh, most popular item was actually jelly beans. This was also a big year because as of 1980, when Ronald Reagan came in, a lot of the restrictions that were forced on companies had now been lifted. We see chicken nuggets come out that year. Applebee's was uh, first released, and that's when Coke started using their high fructose corn syrup, as mentioned before. We also got new products like Capri Sun, which actually goes back to Germany and was trademarked in the 1950s. In 1982, the number one product, Reese's Pieces. And of course, that's because of E.T. Sales tripled after the movie. And apparently, M&M's had a chance but turned down Steven Spielberg. In 1985, Sour Patch Kids were released, which actually started here in Canada in the 1970s. In 1986, the most popular item were Push Pops. In 1987, it was Chex Mix. And in 1988, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. We're now moving into more of the medical issues and health-related concerns, but even if it was just a correlation, high fructose corn syrup and obesity seemed to be joined at the hip. And it was that issue that continued to be the primary health concern. However, some of the research later on will say that high fructose corn syrup doesn't contribute to the obesity issue more than any other energy source if you overdo it. But I'm much more likely to eat an entire box of donuts than I am a whole bag of apples. And that box of donuts will probably contain a bunch of other stuff that may not make me feel so good and cause me to want more. There may, however, be some other problems associated with high fructose corn syrup that was never revealed to us in the 80s. As reported on Healthline, there are other potential issues with this ingredient, including it may increase the risk of fatty liver disease, excessive intake may be linked to diabetes as it may spike insulin levels, and high fructose corn syrup might even make us hungrier in the long run. It may also lead to inflammation, which may be linked to other issues like gout or heart disease and things like that. So can we directly link it to all these issues? No, but it doesn't look great. Is this a case of where there's smoke, there's fire? 
Possibly, but this is where we have to be diligent with the information we consume. And in the 80s and going to the 90s, we didn't get a lot of that information at all. And then it got into more corporate interest because, after all, there are still reports about high fructose corn syrup and it not being linked with any of these problems, especially obesity. As we came out of the 80s and into the 90s, corporate interest did start to take over. Profits came before public health. All the information we first had said nothing good could come from these new ingredients like high fructose corn syrup or trans fats. But then things started to change. As the decades moved on, you sometimes saw reports and studies about how high fructose corn syrup may not be that bad and you may want to look a little deeper into these sort of reports. It may interest you to see who is funding and promoting these things. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One example is a report published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it stated how high fructose corn syrup is not responsible for the obesity epidemic, and we need to retire the idea of how it's been responsible for these sort of health issues. But driven by the profits they earned from the 80s and 90s, some big corporate conflicts of interest began. That report I just mentioned was presented at the American Society for Nutrition Public Information Committee Symposium. A few of the sponsors of that particular event included the Coca-Cola Company, Nestle, Mars Incorporated, and the Sugar Association. It should also be pointed out that the author of that particular report is, quote, a consultant to the food and beverage industry in nutritive sweeteners, including high fructose corn syrup and sucrose, unquote. That author has also had professional associations with the American Chemical Society and the Corn Refiners Association. So red flags, maybe. Again, it depends on who you ask, but you'd be surprised how often these conflicts of interest started happening in the nutrition world coming out of the 80s and 90s, especially when it came to sugar and high fructose corn syrup. So what are we to think? This again comes back to that correlation issue, but as reported in The Atlantic, countries with higher high fructose corn syrup consumption tend to have higher rates of diabetes. But regardless of the issue, several countries actually stopped using it, including India, Ireland, Sweden, Austria, and Uruguay. Other countries such as the UK, Lithuania, France, China, and Australia have drastically reduced their consumption to less than a pound per capita of high fructose corn syrup. This may be all linked to fair agriculture, cultural, economic development, but it's still interesting to see. And this is why you have to look out for ingredient lists. Is some high fructose corn syrup going to completely derail your health? Of course not, but it may be in more foods than you realize, and this was the case in the 80s. It was in everything. If you're looking to avoid it, you'll want to pay attention to the ingredient list on the foods you eat. Some companies are even trying to rename it to things like isolate fructose. Some manufacturers are taking out the regular high fructose corn syrup, aka HFCS42 or HFCS55, and replacing it with HFCS90. So now it's so close to 100% fructose that HFCS90 may now be known as fructose, and the company can now take high fructose corn syrup off its packaging, even though it still contains it. 
There's nothing like changing bad press than with a good old rebrand. And high fructose corn syrup 90 may be nothing more than just a name change while remaining the same. Some manufacturers were even looking to change the name of high fructose corn syrup to corn sugar. I wouldn't cook with high fructose corn syrup on my home, but I might with corn sugar. Corn sugar just sounds better, and that's what they're banking on. Here are some of the other names that they started to disguise high fructose corn syrup as. Glucose syrup, fruit fructose, maize syrup, glucose fructose syrup, isoglucose, dahlia syrup, and crystalline fructose. A simple name change can be enough to completely change our perceptions. This didn't really happen in the 80s and going into the 90s, but as corporate interests took over, this thing started to happen. You may remember this happening with aspartame or NutraSweet becoming AminoSweet. And speaking of aspartame, this is another chemical concoction with links to the 80s and a very sordid history of its own. So it goes by the name NutraSweet or Equal and is contained in over 9,000 products. It's known to be 200 times sweeter than sucrose and was accidentally discovered by a chemist who was working on an anti-ulcer drug. In 1965, while working for international pharmaceutical company G.D. Cyril, who is now owned by chemical giant Monsanto, remember that for later, a chemist named James M. Schlatter had accidentally licked his finger to turn a page. On that finger, it had been contaminated by aspartame derived from ethanol, and he was astounded at its sweet taste. This discovery was reported in 1966, but not actually recognized until 1969, the summer of love. During the low calorie movement of the late 70s, a use for aspartame and a great financial opportunity was recognized. Again, going back to one specific year, 1980, the FDA originally disapproved of aspartame. It had a board of inquiry made up of a team of scientists that reported that it might induce brain tumors. This was challenged by then Cyril Chairman and future Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. He vowed to, quote, call in his markers, unquote, to get it approved. Having former connections in Washington, Rumsfeld would look to his political poll in Washington rather than scientific means to make sure it got approved. When Ronald Reagan became president, the very next day, the new head of the FDA, Arthur Hall Hayes, was handpicked by Rumsfeld as part of Reagan's transition team, and he started a commission to question the original board's disapproval of aspartame. The five-person panel voted three to two to uphold the ban. Hayes then appointed a six-member of his choosing who ended up deadlocking the vote at three to three. Hayes then decided he would be the tie-breaking vote and, of course, voted in favor of aspartame. Hayes later left the FDA under allegations of impropriety, which included him riding in the General Foods private jet. And General Foods would be one of the first major customers of NutraSweet. He then ended up taking a job with Burston Marsteller, the chief public relations firm for both Monsanto and GD Cyril. Now, all this might seem right out of a Michael Moore documentary, but it just sheds some light on how, similar to tobacco, big business and politics can come before the general public's health, and this was starting right in the early 80s. 
So they've got this thing approved. Now they've got to get this new sweetener out on the market. And when you look over the timeline of aspartame's arrival on our shelves, it seems to be centered around 1983 and its inclusion in one very specific diet soda. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the world premiere of a great new soft drink, the world premiere of Diet Coke. Interesting fact here, Diet Coke actually came out in the UK in 1982. And speaking of the UK, they didn't have the same overload of sugar as we did here in North America, but they did have their own explosion of snack treats. And in the 80s, we got the introduction of things like Wispa, the Cadbury Twirl, McCoy's Crisp, my all-time favorite chips, Dairy Lee Lunchables. Uh, But they also had Push Pops and things like Sour Patch Kids. At first, aspartame was used in dry foods, and they saw it had a potential use for things like cereals and chewing gum. A double pleasure is waiting for you. A double pleasure from double mint gum. A double great feeling, making you realize double is the one for you. Double fresh, double smooth. Before aspartame, sweet and low, which is a saccharin, had been considered for drinks, but its strong aftertaste was preventing it from being top choice. They were seeing how well aspartame was working in these chewing gums. Here's another good example. Get your sea shined up, grab a stick of juicy fruit. The taste is gonna move ya. Take a sniff, pull it out. The taste is gonna move ya when you pop it in your mouth. Juicy fruit is gonna move ya. Aspartame was regarded as having no definitive aftertaste, and in the fall of 1983, the first carbonated beverages containing aspartame were sold for public consumption. But people were still not sure of the safety of consuming this new chemical sweetener. And I found an old article from the New York Times from 1983, which was talking about the real hesitation by consumers and doctors. But you obviously know how this story turned out because these multi-billion dollar corporations ultimately did win. The use of aspartame and high fructose corn syrup and even trans fats would continue for decades. It was only much later on when people decided to go back and look to see if this stuff was maybe not that great for us after all. Are ingredients like high fructose corn syrup and aspartame responsible for all our health woes? Of course not, but they might not have helped them. And this is a time where corporations grew to levels they didn't even dream were possible, and now corporate interests did dominate over public health. I'd say that during this period in the 1980s, 
Corporations didn't really have the luxury of sitting back and researching and investigating to see what their products were like or if they're maybe potentially harmful because during this period of you know the deregulation and, and pushing the marketplace and commerce, they really didn't have any time to sit back and, and observe. They had to jump in head first or they would risk being left behind and maybe being forgotten altogether. They had to get their products out there as quickly as possible and see what was going to stick. That's why we had all these random and weird products that came out because now with the advent of things like high fructose corn syrup, they were able to reduce overhead costs and they were able to provide more value to their customers. And I think that was their primary concern. Obviously profits come first, but they wanted to make their audience happy. And then I say going into the 90s, maybe they were starting to look at, you know, is this stuff maybe that healthy? And it would take decades for it to, you know, sort of pick up and, and information was becoming more available and people were becoming more educated on, you know, the things they were putting in their bodies and, and such. But at that point, I think the corporate interests had grown so out of control that there really was no looking back. So let's just finish it there. That's just a brief touch on a gigantic topic, but I think it's this interesting combination of all these things coming together, the government issues, the politics, nostalgia, commerce, marketing, they all sort of came to a head in the 1980s and, and just created this era where it was really like the Wild West. Everything was up in the air. like you could put out all these new products and toys and cartoons and junk food and cereals and there were really no regulation so you can't blame the companies for doing it they were just trying to keep their heads above water amongst all this giant competition and they created so many different new things because you never knew what was going to stick and that's why we got a lot of these amazing things that we look back on really finally some didn't hit and they've been long forgotten and some things we still love and enjoy to this day but i'll finish it there i hope you found this interesting and maybe a little bit of a different sort of topic to look at but one i think that you know we were all a part of and we grew up and experienced it. So hopefully you find that interesting. So I'll finish it off there. Thank you for listening. And if you are in a position to do so and are interested in supporting this show, you can check out patreon.com. That's the platform to support smaller independent podcasts like this for as little as a few bucks a month. And the difference here is that there are various audio rewards depending on which tier you support at. So say the middle tier, the Boba Fett tier, you get access to the Everything 80s Movie Review Club, and there'll be a new one coming up anytime now soon. I never announce when they happen. They just drop out of nowhere. So if you're on Patreon, make sure to check your feed. I also want to welcome some new patrons including victor brian and sarah thank you for being here thank you for the support so that's it for me i'll be back soon with a new episode don't you dare miss it